Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Emily Bosco. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. And inevitably, ridiculousness ensues. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, ridiculousness does ensue whenever we come out of that theme song. Um, so, bloop, 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 bloop. hi, <laughs> listeners, um, eagle-eyed listeners, my eagle-eyed listeners, that doesn't make any sense. Eared, eared. Eagle ears? Mm-hmm. Do eagles have good ears? You know, I don't know. What's I think it? they might be like flat on their head for aerodynamics, but maybe they are quite good. What's, what's an animal that has good ears? Elephant? Elephant-eared listeners may go. have noticed. It's <laughs> 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 fucking stupid. <laughs> Elephant-eared <laughs> listeners may have noticed uh, that we don't have our usual lineup this week. Uh, I did try to warn you a couple of weeks ago that this might be happening, and sure enough, this week, stepping into the role of co-host uh, is the lovely, talented, and charming Miss Emily Bosco. Hello. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for stepping in. This is in exciting. our hour of need. Mm-hmm. So you'll be listening to an unfamiliar voice, but other than that, the show will be more or less the same, probably, unless it's completely not. <laughs> um, we'll see. Because that's just sort of how the way things roll here. <laughs> uh, if you've been listening regularly, you know that at the moment I'm sitting in Lewisburg, West Virginia, uh, and we're in rehearsals for Pride and Prejudice, and Miss Bosco is playing Lizzie Bennett, and it's been going well. Yeah. Like, yeah, kind of way better than it has any right to. I know. Well, I first looked at the rehearsal call sheet, and I was like, two weeks to put on Pride and Prejudice? Like, oh, oh boy, oh boy. But it actually, like, yeah, we've kind of been chugging along like a little happy yeah. train. It's been um, lovely. It's been so nice to be back in a room with other living, breathing human beings. Oh, man. After so the good. long cultural desert that has been... <laughs> Uh, all of the quarantine, Zoom, all of the Zoom theater, <clears throat> all of the Zoom theater, and uh, and dear listener, if you happen to live within a couple hours drive of Lewisburg, West Virginia, please shoot us an email and let me know if you want to come see the show because uh, I'd love to see you. We'd love to see you here, and yeah. um, frankly, if you uh, if you email and let me know real quick. I still have a comp left. I might be able to get you in free. (laughs) (laughs) Bribing the listeners. Bribing the listeners. I have found bribing listeners is the best way. Really, bribing people is the best way to get anyone to do anything. Okay. (laughs) Poor baby. (laughs) Why, is that not true? Do you not... (laughs) It just sounds like you buy friends. Do you not have to pay your friends to hang out with you? Is that not... Have I been doing this wrong somehow? (laughs) No, no, you're doing great. Okay, (laughs) good, good. I was on on the verge of feeling very embarrassed. Um, yeah, so we are uh, we are recording this in the now empty and echoey rehearsal room that we've been putting the show up in. So quite apart from different voices, uh, if the whole thing just sounds a little screwy, um, I'm doing the best I can, but I'm editing on the road. Leave me alone. <laughs> My life is hard. He's booked and blessed. Booked and blessed. Too bad, too bad. <laughs> Fingers crossed this trend continues. Will continue. <laughs> uh, for our first time listeners, uh, this is not, in fact, just a sit around and chat about theater podcast. This is a literature podcast. Well, it's a comedy podcast. Well, it tries to be a comedy podcast, mm. masquerading mm. as a literature podcast or as we sometimes call it, an edutainment mm-hmm, podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we do is read short stories by classic authors of le- yesteryear, usually in the public domain, because nobody likes to get sued by living authors. Um, <laughs> we read them sight unseen, and we make fun of all the accidental penis jokes. Basically what it comes down to. Love it. But first, 
there's the edu part of the edutainment where um, we read out some fun facts. So Yay. how about we get to doing what it is we do? I love it. All right. Did you know, Ken, that I was an English major in college? For the sake of this podcast, I'm going to say I didn't. You knew I, that? Well, yeah, it's not like we have not spoken to each other. Oh, I guess I must have mentioned it. Well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm extra excited to read some stuff for that reason. Um, well, uh, while I am trying to find my list of fun facts, um, tell me about that. Why English major? What did you What did you like? What did you learn? And what got you over into theater? Well, I always loved to act, but when I was 17... I just was like too young to know for sure that that was absolutely what I wanted to do forever. Like I knew it was super fun, but I also was sort of just hungry for information and I wanted to read everything. And so I was like, oh, let me do English major, theater minor. And I kind of got to do like best of both worlds. But I got to read a lot of spectacularly like nerdy stuff. I mean, your classic like Beowulf and Canterbury Tales. And then like as you sort of progress through the major you get to like pick your classes more specifically and then I was doing like queer film and literature and like all these different intersection of, of things I found interesting so it was really quite nice awesome yeah and cool. then when I graduated I was like mm, I'm in these film classes and I'm watching the films and I'm more jealous of the people on the screen than of myself getting to watch them so I said I think I need to switch focuses here <laughs> yeah yeah that's fair yeah who was the coolest uh, author, writer that you ran across while oh. while studying. Coolest writer. Or most interesting or hmm. um, whatever a better word than cool is. <laughs> I was like, what are we talking about? Do you mean meeting them in person or just like favorite no, just, things No, just read? like, oh, I ran across this author that I'd never heard of before. Oh, and yeah, went, yeah. oh, Jesus, that's amazing because this woman was whatever. Oh, this right. guy was, you know, punching Nazis in between, you know. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm so embarrassed that I can't remember the writer's name right now, but who wrote Jurassic Park? What's his name? Uh, Crichton. Crichton, yes. Um, he wrote another book, Sphere, and I had never seen uh, the movie or even heard of it, but I read it for a class. I forget which one. And it just, like, blew my mind. It was so, so good. Um, but, I mean, he's hardly, like, an unknown <laughs> author. <laughs> but uh, my memory is bad, but I really love that book. <laughs> cool. Great. <laughs> Uh, so, um, this week I really wanted to find a short story for you to read by Jane Austen because it felt super thematically appropriate. Yay! Unfortunately, oh. she <laughs> primarily wrote novels and the shorts that she did write were either very short, like 500 words or less, way too long for this format, uh, a series of fictionalized letters that while amusing were just sort of not really going to fit mm how we did things yeah. um, or just super odd, like super odd. She had, she does have a short piece. It would have been a little short for this anyway, but uh, it ended up being published under the name, the first act of a comedy. It was written when she was very young, like teenager, like 14, 15, very, very young. Okay. Uh, and during it, uh, the owner of an inn prepares for an important guest while a young woman who lives on the moon ponders and writes songs about the young man from the sun that she is supposed to get engaged to when they meet in London. Okay. And this was the first act of an unfinished <laughs> play that that she wrote when she was a child. And it's part of uh, a collection known as the, the Juvenilia or the Juvenilia or, or Juvenile. Um, mm -hmm. But there wasn't a... I couldn't find a collection of those things that went together nicely to be a full episode without mm. running into being a four hour long episode. So unfortunately, we're not going to be reading her, but I did think uh, I'd give a few quick tidbits about her as an author anyway, yeah. because here we are yeah. living in Austin land. Um, plus it can sort of be backdoor shameless self-promotion. <laughs> so, uh, born December 16th, 1775, she's known today for her six novels, two of which were published after her tragically early death, uh, most notably, of course, Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice. Um, despite having worked on this show for weeks, months now, if you count when I actually got the script, I still cannot, for the life of me, spell the word prejudice. Really? Yep, I fuck it up. <laughs> Every goddamn do you, time. Do you ever say it in the show? 
I don't think so. I say it one time, and I'm really tempted to look, look at the audience and be like, my prejudice. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, I won't. I won't do it. <laughs> uh, and I only say pride when I'm telling you it's a good thing. Right, so. right, right. Oh, no, Cheeky. I also say I don't mean to hurt your pride. There you go. Okay, it comes up a couple of times. Um, anyway, uh, despite being one of the most popular authors of yesteryear today, at the time, because she was a woman, she was publishing anonymously, so her writing brought her very little notoriety or acclaim. Uh, her work was, however, largely admired in her own time and shortly after her passing, praised by the likes of Sir Walter Scott and compared by critic, scientist, and general Renaissance man Richard Watley to no lesser icons than Shakespeare and Homer. Yes! Yeah. Come on, Jane. Uh, unsurprisingly, Austen's life was not dissimilar to that of most of her popular young heroines. Uh, she lived on a sizable family property and attended balls and the like as a child. At one uh. such party, she was introduced to a young man named Tom Lefroy. She wrote to her friend shortly after saying, I am almost afraid to tell you how my Irish friend and I behaved. Imagine to yourself everything most profligate and shocking in the way of dancing and sitting down together. <laughs> <laughs> Dancing and sitting? You yep. don't say. <laughs> uh, so their, their month-long flirtation was apparently the stuff of romantic legends. Almost certainly it was the emotional inspiration for a few of Austin Land's greatest heartaches and triumphs. Oh, yeah. And after her death, Lefroy, who by then was a successful judge and politician, confessed that he had loved her during that month they spent together. And though it was a boyhood love, he never really got over it. <gasps> oh, it's like Marianne and Willoughby. God, that's sad. Her first published novel, Sense and Sensibility, uh, was published on commission in 1811, and the author line was by a lady. Oh, my God. Uh, it recouped expenses quickly and sold more than double the expectations, so her future books were published as by the author of Sense and Sensibility. <laughs> Wait, and she had already died by then? No, she had not yet died at oh, this good. point. Okay. She got through Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, and two of the others that I don't remember and oh, didn't good. make a note of. I want her to have enjoyed her fame, um, <laughs> if only briefly. Her books were so popular, so famous, so well-loved, even during her lifetime, that people illegally pirated them and translated them into other languages and even started writing their own fan fiction about their favorite characters, <laughs> writing their own scenes to tack on endings to the stories about things like married life at Pemberley mm -hmm. and whatnot. <laughs> Um, unfortunately, she did grow ill, slowly lost her energy, and passed away at 41 years old while still working on her next novel. Since her death, criticism of her work has ranged from the glowing reviews of the likes of Harold Bloom, who put her on his list of greatest Western writers of all time, to the vitriol-filled critiques of Mark Twain, who was so vicious in his criticism that many people have accused him of secretly being in love with her. <laughs> uh, Funny way of showing it. Yeah, well, I mean, Mark Twain was basically a giant toddler. He was just pulling her pigtails I was on the playground. Say, I was just gonna say that, yep, that's very <laughs> playground behavior, yeah. You know. I hate her writing so much, but she's so pretty and yeah. Stupid boys. Mark Twain, dumbest boy in school. It's true. Uh, regardless, her work is still going strong and with us today. Uh, her most famous leading couple, Lizzie Bennet and Fitzwilliam Darcy, uh, have been rewritten and reimagined by countless writers and portrayed on stage and screen by the likes of Greer Garson and Laurence Olivier. Uh, Jennifer Ely and Colin Firth, Kira Knightley and Matthew McFadden. My husband. That's yes, how you say his him. Name. Yeah, Great. Him. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of of course, Miss um, Emily Bosco and Ken Sandberg. Mm -hmm. uh, all of that said, as I mentioned, there are no great Austin shorts for you to read. So this week, my darling, you will be reading a short story by this podcast's muse. 
and the only woman whose name I would ever consider getting tattooed on my body. We actually have a Patreon goal involving that very thing. Oh boy. <laughs> Dame Agatha Christie. You will be Yay. reading The Case of the Missing Will. All right. Let's get this fire going. Yeah. The Case of the Missing Will by Agatha Christie. The problem presented to us by Miss Violet Marsh made rather a pleasant change from our usual routine work. Poirot had received a brisk and business-like note from the lady asking for an appointment, and had replied asking her to call upon him at 11 o'clock the following day. That's very civilized. I know. I kind of, like, I wish we could go back to doing that. Like, leaving messages and calling on people. There's yeah. just something very classy about that. It's true. Brisk and business-like. I would like all my interactions to be that way. <laughs> <laughs> brisk and business-like. Is it possible to do that in a text? <laughs> Uh, I think texting is primarily brisk <laughs> and business-like, unless it's full of um, the little uh, poop emoji. <laughs> you up, period. <laughs> uh, brisk. <laughs> don't think that's particularly business-like. It's a certain kind of business-like. Getting that's down to business. Getting down to business-like. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so this lady <laughs> asking for an appointment. This lady asking if Poirot is up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> she arrived punctually, a tall, handsome young woman, plainly but neatly dressed, with an assured and business-like manner. Business-like again. Getting okay. down to business-like. There we like. go. Great. Mm -hmm. So she's a hooker. She's handsome, too. I always like that description of a lady as handsome. It's either a compliment or really not. And it kind of depends oh. on who's using it. Oh, I see. Like, someone could be like, she's mm, handsome. Handsome? <laughs> no. <laughs> Which is to say, like, she's symmetrical right. and like as a human being fine looking oh. but she possesses all the parts of a face yeah <laughs> in more or less the right order <laughs> clearly a young woman who meant to get on in the world I am not a great admirer of the so-called new woman myself and in spite of her good looks I was not particularly prepossessed in her favor <laughs> Okay, okay. The barrier's not feeling it. No. Uh, so, um, so I understand that you're not wildly familiar with Poirot and Hastings. No. Uh, Hastings has a tendency to fall head over heels for whatever dangerous woman walks into the room. Uh, oh. Particularly, it seems, if she is a, a, a redhead. Hastings does. Hastings, okay. yes, our, our narrator. Okay, cool. Um, Full disclosure, I only knew how to say Poirot because Ken told me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so it does say something that uh, that he has just announced. Yeah, she's cute, but I wasn't feeling it. I don't love it. Yeah, okay, great. <clears throat> Got it. My business is of a somewhat unusual nature, Monsieur Poirot, she began after she had accepted a chair. I had better begin at the beginning and tell you the whole story. If you please, mademoiselle. I am an orphan. My father was one of two brothers, sons of a small yeoman farmer in Devonshire. Yeoman? Yeoman, okay. <laughs> Don't know. Yep. I have seen this word before. I do not remember how to pronounce it. Yeoman, a man holding and cultivating a small land estate, a freeholder. So he's, he's, a, he's a farmer. Great. Okay. <laughs> well... Um, <laughs> Now that I look at this again, I'm like, that makes sense, because the sentence says, my father was one of two brothers, sons of a small yeoman farmer in Devonshire. <laughs> so I could have just... Uh, context. Context. Are fun. <laughs> the farm was a poor one, and the elder brother, Andrew, emigrated to Australia, where he did very well indeed, and by means of successful speculation in land, became a very rich man. The younger brother, Roger, my father, had no leanings towards the agricultural life. He managed to educate himself a little and obtained a post as clerk with a small firm. He married slightly above him. My mother was the daughter of a poor artist. My father died when I was six years old. When I was 14, my mother followed him to the grave. Oh. Hmm. Well, she did say she was an orphan. That's how we started. That's kind of a lovely way to say that, though. The mom followed him. My only living relation then was my uncle Andrew, who had recently returned from Australia and bought a small place, Crabtree Manor, in his native county. Don't trust the Australians at okay. this point in history. Okay. It's mostly peopled with criminals. Okay. All right. Okay. Right? Because Australia was founded as a, a 
Correct. Prisoner colony. Correct. By England. Okay, we've got Crabtree Manor. Crabtree and Evelyn. Gotcha. I'm gonna remember that. <laughs> Hand lotion manor. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't take it there. That was you. <laughs> Shame on you. Okay. <laughs> oh, you really haven't listened to enough of this podcast if that surprises you. <laughs> he was exceedingly kind to his brother's orphan child, took me to live with him, and treated me in every way as though I was his own daughter. Crabtree Manor, in spite of its name, is really only an old farmhouse. Farming was in my uncle's blood, and he was intensely interested in various modern farming experiments. Although kindness itself to me, he had certain peculiar and deeply rooted ideas as to the upbringing of women. Himself a man of little or no education, though possessing remarkable shrewdness, he placed little value on what he called book knowledge. He would have hated this podcast. He would have hated this podcast, yeah. yeah. Mm. He also probably wasn't a huge fan of Jane Austen. True. He was opposed to the education of women. In his opinion, girls... Girl, girls. <laughs> this accent is getting tough. Girls should learn practical housework and dairy work, be useful about the home, and have as little to do with book learning as possible. Yeah, we like them stupid and hardworking. Dairy work. <laughs> you know, milking the cows, churning the butter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He proposed to bring me up on these lines to my bitter disappointment and annoyance. Something, something hand lotion. <laughs> I rebelled, frankly. Yes, I like this lady. I knew that I possessed a good brain and had absolutely no talent for domestic duties. My uncle and I had many bitter arguments on the subject, for though much attached to each other, we were both self-willed. I was lucky enough to win a scholarship, and up to a certain point was successful in getting my own way. The crisis arose when I resolved to go to Girton. I like that name. Girton? Girton. <laughs> this is a school or something, presumably? I guess. We'll see. I had a little money of my own, left to me by my mother, and I was quite determined to make the best use of the gifts God had given me. I had one long, final argument with my uncle. He put the facts plainly before me. He had no other relations, and he had intended me to be his sole heiress. As I have told you, he was a very rich man. If I persisted in these newfangled notions of mine, however, I need look for nothing from him. I remained polite, but firm. I should always be deeply attached to him, I told him, but I must lead my own life. We parted on that note. You fancy your brains, my girl, were his last words. I've no book learning, but for all that, I'll pit mine against yours any day. We'll see what we shall see. Yes, she's got gumption. Hmm. This seems like a contentious family relationship. Mm -hmm. That was nine years ago. I have stayed with him for a weekend occasionally, and our relations were perfectly amicable, though his views remained unaltered. He never referred to my having matriculated, nor to my BSc, Bachelor of Science. BSc? Big B, BS, little c. I would assume Bachelor of Science. Bachelor of Science, yes. Okay, I think. For the last three years, his health had been failing, and a month ago, he died. I am now coming to the point of my visit. My uncle left a most extraordinary will. By its terms, Crabtree Manor and its contents are to be at my disposal for a year from his death, during which time my clever niece may prove her wits. The actual words run. <laughs> what a douche. At the end of that period, my wits having been proved better than hers, the house and all my uncle's large fortune passed to various charitable institutions. That is a little hard on you, mademoiselle, seeing that you were Mr. Marsh's only blood relation. I do not look on it that way. Uncle Andrew warned me fairly, and I chose my own path. Since I would not fall in with his wishes, he was at perfect liberty to leave his money to whom he pleased. Was the will drawn up by a lawyer? No, it was written on a printed will form and witnessed by the man and his wife who live at the house and do for my uncle. Do what for the uncle? <laughs> What? Hmm? And do for the uncle? Oh, that's, that's all it just, does. Uh, it's a, by the man and his wife who live at the house and do for my uncle. I guess the, the servants? Uh, yeah, yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. The, 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 the comedy answer the comedy answer is that they are his nightly sex show. Sure, they sure. do for the uncle, but sure. realistically, no. It's probably <laughs> just that they're the help around the, the house. The It's <laughs> not nearly as interesting that way. I kind of enjoy the idea that 
Crabtree Manor has nightly sex shows, but... At Hand Lotion Manor. But, you know. You know, we can hold both. We can hold space for both in our hearts and our minds. (laughs) 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 Okay, now I don't know who's talking anymore. Um... (laughs) Yeah, good luck. (laughs) (laughs) It just goes quote to quote to quote. Okay, she says, oh, these people who do for my uncle. Okay. And then the narrator, no, somebody else, I don't know, someone's talking. (laughs) There might be a possibility of upsetting such a will. I would not even attempt to do such a thing. You regard it then as a sporting challenge on the part of your uncle? That is exactly how I look upon it. It bears that interpretation, certainly, said Poirot thoughtfully. It's Poirot. Got it. That's our little funny little Belgian, French-speaking, mustachioed. Hero. French. He's French. Well, he's Belgian, but they speak French there. Okay, okay. Somewhere in this rambling old manor house, you're... <laughs> yes! I can't do it. Oh, this is terrible. Oh, I love it. I have it's been... Been... It's it is delightful to... to hear someone else Why do it. Why did you do this to me? <laughs> We're going to see how long I can make this last. Somewhere in this rambling old manor house, your uncle has concealed either a sum of money in notes or possibly a second will, and has given you a year in which to exercise your ingenuity to find it. Exactly, Monsieur Poirot, and I am paying you the compliment of assuming that your ingenuity will be greater than mine. Hey, but that is very charming of you. (laughs) My gray cells are at your disposal. You have made no search yourself. Only a cursory one, but I have too much respect for my uncle's undoubted abilities to fancy that the task will be an easy one. Have you the will or a copy of it with you? Miss March handed a document across the table. Poirot ran through it, nodding to himself. All right. Well, I no, I I like this setup that it's, um, I died, (laughs) and now I'm going to make everyone who wants my shit jump Mm -hmm. through a bunch of hoops and play games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Solve puzzles break out of this escape room if they right. want to inherit and the clock is ticking because if you don't i know it's so, it's all going to go to charity it's so cruel well it's it, it's one of my major contentions with the harry potter books is that dumbledore is this wonderful man but he also like leaves all this shit and all these puzzles for harry to work through when he's already gone and it's like you couldn't have just like laid it out simply just been like yo harry guess what like you're a horcrux here's the facts here's everything i know no he like had made him go through all this yeah. stuff well, and in that case, especially bad because you're not dealing with the inheritance of a um, of a manor. Right. You're, you're dealing with the world, literally like the fate of the world. The, yeah. yeah. The, the life or death of <laughs> yeah. humanity. Yep. 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 Dumbledore was a dick. Oh, well, that's oof. it's hard for me to agree with that, but in some ways. <laughs> but I love Dumby. Anyway, okay, this is different, <laughs> but I'm giving those vibes here. Made three years ago, dated March 25th, and the time is given also, 11 a.m. That is very suggestive. It narrows down the field of search. Assuredly, it is another will we have to seek for. A will made even half an hour later would upset this. Ah, bien, mademoiselle, it is a problem charming and ingenious that you have presented to me here. (laughs) so hard. I shall have all the pleasure in the world in solving it for you. Granted that your uncle was a man of ability, his gray cells cannot have been of the quality of Hercule Poirot. Hercule? Hercule? Yes! Poirot. Oui, oui, très bien. Really, Poirot's vanity is blatant, (laughs) says the narrator. (laughs) Yeah, Hastings has opinions about uh, his Really? I'm like, okay, Hastings, shady, shady. There's an exclamation point, too. Really, Poirot's vanity is blatant, (laughs) I say. Fortunately, I have nothing of moment on hand at the minute. Hastings and I will go down to Crabtree Manor tonight. The man and his wife who attended on your uncle are still there, I presume. Yes, the name is Baker. The following morning saw us started on the hunt proper. We had arrived late the night before. Mr. and Mrs. Baker, having received a telegram from Miss Marsh, were expecting us. They were a pleasant couple, the man gnarled and (laughs) pink-cheeked, like a shriveled pippin. (laughs) A pippin! (laughs) And his wife, a woman of vast proportion and true Devonshire calm. (laughs) 
<laughs> so he's a shriveled little bean and she's gigantic. And she's is enormous. what we're getting? Okay, I'm, great. I'm, I'm wow. picturing the Tenardiers. Oh, me too. But I hope they me are. Me too. But yep. he said they were kind. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. the Tenardiers. Pleasant and, and pink cheeked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tired with our journey and the eight mile drive from the station, we had retired at once to bed after a supper of roast chicken, apple pie, and Devonshire cream. It's one of my favorite Sounds things. so good. That they, they do. That does sound delicious. Mm. One of my favorite things that they do in all of these stories is whenever they go anywhere, <laughs> they arrive. They get food shoved in their faces, <laughs> and then they go to bed. Oh, yeah. And they just chill. That sounds Un- like my family. Unless yeah. unless it's a story about a haunting, in which case they get food shoved in their faces, they go to bed, and then like two hours later they get woken up by something, yeah. you know, dripping on their forehead or oh, no. knocking on the window or oh, no. whatever. <laughs> oh, Devonshire cream. Mm. We had now disposed of an excellent breakfast and were sitting in a small paneled room, which had been the late Mr. Marsh's study and living room. A roll-top desk stuffed with papers, all neatly docketed, stood against the wall, and a big leather armchair showed plainly that it had been its owner's constant resting place. Does that mean it has, like, butt prints in it? Yes. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> it means you can see his butt prints in the chair. Okay, great. <laughs> Probably elbow prints in the arms. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A big chintz-covered settee ran along the opposite wall, and the deep, low window seats were covered with the same faded chintz of an old-fashioned pattern. Oh, bien, mon ami, said Poirot, lighting one of his tiny cigarettes. We must map out our plan of campaign. Already I have made a rough survey of the house, but I am of the opinion that any clue will be found in this room. We shall have to go through the documents in the desk with meticulous care. Naturally, I do not expect to find the will amongst them, but it is likely that some apparently innocent paper may conceal the clue to its hiding place. But first, we must have a little information. Ring the bell, I pray of you. I did so. While we were waiting for it to be answered, Poirot walked up and down, looking about him approvingly. A man of method, this Mr. Marsh. See how neatly the packets of paper are docketed? Then the key to each drawer has its ivory label. So has the key of the china cabinet on the wall, and see with what precision the china within is arranged. <laughs> it rejoices the heart. Nothing here offends the eye. Uncle's wow. got OCD. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Like real bad. Yep. <laughs> He's got label makers for everything. The precision. <laughs> yep. Probably does the. But um, it's rejoicing Poirot's heart. How cute. Poirot also has a little bit of OCD. Yeah, I was going to say, he seems particular. He seems pretty particular. He's a little finicky. Yeah. yeah, He came to an abrupt pause as his eye was caught by the key of the desk itself, to which a dirty envelope was affixed. Poirot frowned at it and withdrew it from the lock. On it were scribbled the words, key of roll top desk, in a crabbed handwriting, quite unlike the neat superscriptions on the other keys. Hmm, I wonder if that's important. An alien note, said Poirot, frowning. (laughs) I could swear that here we have no longer the personality of Mr. Marsh. But who else has been in the house? Only Miss Marsh, and she, if I mistake not, is also a young lady of method and order. Baker came in and... What? Oh, Baker came in answer to the bell. Baker. <laughs> Baker is one of the two people who live in the house and do for her. Shri- oh, shriveled guy. Okay, great. Yes, shriveled guy. Shriveled guy, shriveled guy. Shriveled guy with plump wife is Got Baker. it. Okay, what does he sound like? Mm. Will you fetch Madame your wife and answer a few questions? Baker departed. <laughs> I don't know who said that. That might have been Poirot. Take two. Probably take, Poirot. Take two. Will you fetch Madame your wife and answer a few questions? <laughs> Am I doing good? (laughs) I love it. This is great. Um, Now, accents have a long and glorious history on this show of uh, spiraling and train wrecking. And I have to confess, I'm kind of disappointed that you have done neither. Wow. Well, I'm proud of myself, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I'm doing my best. Um, okay, and I am so sorry to anyone actually French listening to this. this please, forget forget you ever heard this, ever. Um, okay. I'm being forced. Okay. <laughs> um, 
Will you fetch Madame your wife and answer a few questions? Baker departed and in a few moments returned with Mrs. Baker, wiping her hands on her apron and beaming all over her face. In a few clear words, Poirot set forth the object of his mission. The Bakers were immediately sympathetic. Us don't want to see Miss Violet done out of what's hers, declared the woman. <laughs> Cruel heart would be for hospitals to get it all. <laughs> Why is Mrs. I Baker like I, an old Southern I nanny? Don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't. Oh no, we don't want her to get out of what she's owed. <laughs> no, I, oh, I ran out of voices. But now I'm, now I'm committing to it. Now I'm committing to it. Okay. Does that make Mr. Baker Foghorn Leghorn? <laughs> well, I do declare. Okay. So we've got British, French, American, and U.S. Southern all in this one tale. Yeah. You know, this is, I'm a um, woman of many talents. This is this is an eclectic <laughs> read. I am here for it. I love oh, it. Oh, God. This is... Whew, all right. All right. <laughs> Poirot proceeded with his questions. Yes, Mr. and Mrs. Baker remembered perfectly witnessing the will. Baker had previously been sent into the neighboring town to get two printed will forms. Two, said Poirot sharply. Yes, sir, for safety, like, I suppose, <laughs> in case he should spoil one. And sure enough, so he did do. Do again. Us had signed one. What time of day was that? Baker scratched his head, but his wife was quicker. Why, to be sure, I just put the milk on for the cocoa at 11. <laughs> Don't you remember? It had all boiled over on the stove when us got back to the kitchen. <laughs> oh, this is amazing. And after what? <laughs> Twould be about an hour later, us had to go in again. I've made a mistake, said old master. Had to tear the whole thing up. I'll trouble you to sign again. And us did. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, oh God. it's like the old southern nanny <laughs> and some like um 49er prospector <laughs> yep just got plopped down in the middle of this french story <laughs> wherever in england this yep. manor house is yep. i'm sticking with it i wonder what region <laughs> i wonder what region in england this was attempting to be written for well, and also the way, so the way she's talking, she's saying us had to go in again instead of we, and then like, right. but then she's saying like things like twould also, twould be a mistake. Yeah. So I'm like, maybe she's supposed to be cockney. She might be cockney. Oh, Definitely. All right. <laughs> I can try that. Oh, no, 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 no. You are not changing oh, now. okay. <laughs> you like her too much. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I like, like her. her. I, I like her too much. Plus that would be confusing. Me too. Um. Okay. I'm sticking with it. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> And afterward, Master gave us a tidy sum of money each. I've left you nothing in my will, says he, but each year I live you'll have this to be a nest egg when I'm gone. And sure enough, so he did. Poirot reflected. After you had signed the second time, what did Mr. Marsh do? Do you know? Went out to the village to pay tradesmen's books. That did not seem very promising. Poirot tried another tack. Tick. The word is just tack, but it seems like... Tack. Tactic. No? T-A-C-K. Uh, yeah. Definitions of tack. Mm -hmm. A small, sharp, broad-headed nail. Yep, yep. Probably not that. No, that. I'm guessing mm -hmm. he did not try to drive a nail into nope. the person he's questioning. Yep. A long stitch used to fasten fabrics together temporarily prior to permanent sewing. He was probably not stitching nope. these people together. <laughs> Uh, verb, fasten or affix, or from sailing, to change course by turning the boat's head into and through the wind. That's so to it. take a different tack That's it. is to um, change course, course try a different direction. Yep. Wow, interesting. Okay. See, this is why this yeah. is... Educational. Yeah, it was cool. On top of stupid and full of dirty words <laughs> and penis jokes. There hasn't been too much dirty in here yet. Not yet. I'm still waiting for Hastings to ejaculate. 
Oh boy. It's his favorite thing to do. Wow. I'm going to be very disappointed if he doesn't at some point in this story ejaculate. I think he's not alone in that. <laughs> <laughs> that did not seem very promising. Poirot tried another tack. He held out the key of the desk. Is that your master's writing? I may have imagined it, but I fancied that a moment or two elapsed before Baker replied, Yes, sir, it is. <laughs> He's lying, I thought, but why? Has your master let the house? Have there been any strangers in it during the last three years? No, sir. No visitors? Only Miss Violet. No strangers of any kind been inside this room? No, sir. You forget the workman, Jim, his wife reminded him. <laughs> workman? Workman? <laughs> Poirot wheeled around on her. What workman? The woman explained that about two and a half years ago, workmen had been in the house to do certain repairs. She was quite vague as to what the repairs were. Her view seemed to be that the whole thing was a fad of her master's and quite unnecessary. Part of the time the workmen had been in the study, but what they had done there she could not say, as her master had not let either of them into the room whilst the work was in progress. Unfortunately, they could not remember the name of the firm employed, beyond the fact that it was a Plymouth one. "'We progress, Hastings,' said Poirot, rubbing his hands as the bakers left the room. Clearly he made a second will and then had workmen from Plymouth in to make a suitable hiding place. Instead of wasting time taking up the floor and tapping the walls, we will go to Plymouth. With a little trouble, we were able to get the information we wanted. Instead of looking in the room where I, know, I think wait, it what? is, yeah. we're going to travel across the yeah. country. Yep, yep, yep. Because that's less trouble? Well, you know, taking up the floor and tapping the wall. Yeah, he's going to destroy a whole room. I think I'd rather hop on a carriage. Yeah. <laughs> just go I'm somewhere. I'm just saying, it's not, it's not <laughs> really less work. I think he just wants to take a trip. He's just, like, feeling a little bit itchy for travel. So he's like, oh, Hastings, we go. I do enjoy the train. Yeah. I like their food. And I enjoy sleeping. Exactly. Hastings, I feel lazy. And it's all a tax write-off. Yeah, there you go. Or something. <laughs> and maybe there will be a murder on the Orient Express on the way. If they are taking the Orient Express to get to another part of England... <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, they have... I didn't really think about the name of the train. Okay. Really <laughs> missed. Uh, geographically speaking, they've gone a little off Men never course. want to ask for directions. They so need to change... <laughs> Attack. <laughs> oh, God. With a little trouble, we were able to get the information we wanted. After one or two essays, we found the firm employed by Mr. Marsh. Their employees had all been with them many years, and it was easy to find the two men who had worked under Mrs. Marsh. Mrs. Marsh? Mr. <laughs> Mrs. Marsh? Mrs. Marsh. It was easy to find the two men who had worked under Mr. Marsh's orders. They remembered the job perfectly. Among various other minor jobs, they had taken up one of the bricks in the old-fashioned fireplace, made a cavity beneath, and so cut the brick that it was impossible to see the join. By pressing on the second brick from the end, the whole thing was raised. It had been quite a complicated piece of work, and the old gentleman had been very fussy about it. Our informant was a man called Kogan, a big, gaunt man with a grizzled mustache. He seemed an intelligent fellow. We returned to Crabtree Manor in high spirits, and locking the study door, proceeded to put our newly acquired knowledge into effect. It was impossible to see any sign on the bricks, but when we pressed in the manner indicated, a deep cavity was at once disclosed. Chug chug. Eagerly, Poirot plunged in his hand. Suddenly, his face fell from complacent elation to consternation. <laughs> All, oh, <Man>. no. <laughs> hate it when that happens. Plunge in your hand and all of the excitement he's, drops out of your face. He's not excited anymore. <laughs> I have never found that to be the case, but, um, you know, some people just can't keep their excitement okay. going. <laughs> Told you, you need to listen to more of this show. I do. <laughs> All he held was a charred fragment of stiff paper. But for it, the cavity was empty. 
Sacre! cried Poirot angrily. Someone has been before us. We examined the scrap of paper anxiously. Clearly, it was a fragment of what we sought. A portion of Baker's signature remained, but no indication of what the terms of the will had been. Poirot sat back on his heels. His expression would have been comical if we had not been so overcome. <laughs> this would have been funny if it didn't suck right, so much. exactly. I understand it not, he growled. Who destroyed this, and what was the object? The bakers, I suggested. Et pourquoi? Neither will makes any provision for them, and they are more likely to be kept on with Miss Marsh than if the place became the property of a hospital. How could it be to anyone's advantage to destroy the will? The hospital's benefit, yes, but one cannot suspect institutions. Perhaps the old man changed his mind and destroyed it himself, I suggested. Poirot rose to his feet, dusting his knees with his usual care. He is finicky. That may be, he admitted, one of your more sensible observations, Hastings. Well, we can do no more here. <laughs> well done, buddy. <laughs> oh, good job, little good, puppy. Good job, yeah. Well, we can do no more here. We have done all that mortal man can do. We have successfully pitted our wits against the late Andrew Marsh's but unfortunately, his niece is not better off for our success. By driving to the station at once, we were just able to catch a train to London, though not the principal express. Poirot was sad and dissatisfied. Well, yeah, they just gave up. <laughs> They're like, you win, old rude guy with the mind games. That is unusual. Right, well, the story's not done. Well, clearly. The story's not done. I'm just curious what the game is. Right, right. For my part, I was tired and dozed in a corner. Suddenly, as we were just moving out of Tonton, Taunton, don't know. Is it a place name? Yeah. As we were just moving out of Taunton. Some silly English train station. Yeah. Poirot uttered a piercing squeal. <gasps> Vite, Hastings, awake and jump, but jump, I say. Before I knew butt jump. Butt jump. <laughs> Before I knew where I was, we were standing on the platform, bareheaded and minus our valises. Suitcases. Right, our valises. Bareheaded. Someone took their hats too. Someone took their hair. They're bald. Oh, wig snatched. Yeah. Mama. Okay. Before I knew where I was, we were <laughs> We were standing on the platform, bareheaded and minus our valises, whilst the train disappeared into the night. I was furious, but Poiret paid no attention. Imbecile that I have been, he cried. Triple imbecile. Not again will I vaunt my little gray cells. That's a good job at any rate, I said grumpily, but what's this all about? As usual, when following out his own ideas, Poirot paid absolutely no attention to me. <laughs> oh, Hastings. Yeah. That Hastings has means... a little bit of a complex. Oh. Or should. Oh. Deserves to. Yeah. <laughs> the tradesman's books. I have left them entirely out of account. But yes, where? Where? Never mind. I cannot be mistaken. We must return at once. Easier said than done. We managed to get a slow train to Exeter, and there Poirot hired a car. We arrived back at Crabtree Manor in the small hours of the morning. I pass over the bewilderment of the bakers when we had at last aroused them. Paying no attention to anybody, Poirot strode at once to the study. I have been not a triple imbecile, but 36 times one, my friend, he wow. deigned to remark. That is wow. super specific, dude. <laughs> he multiplied it by 12. <laughs> Why 36 imbeciles? I don't know. Now, behold. Going straight to the desk, he drew out the key and detached the envelope from it. I stared at him stupidly. <laughs> <laughs> like it's the, good to be that self-aware. I know, I like the, the modesty. <laughs> I stared at him stupidly. How could he possibly hope to find a big will form in that tiny envelope? With great care, he cut open the envelope, laying it out flat. Then he lighted the fire and held the plain inside surface of the envelope to the flame. In a few minutes, faint characters began to appear. Invisible ink! <gasps> Look, mon ami! cried Poirot in triumph. I looked. There were just a few lines of faint writing stating briefly that he left everything to his niece, Violet Marsh. It was dated March 25th, 12.30 p.m., and witnessed by Albert Pike, confectioner, 
and Jesse Pike, married woman. <laughs> That's her occupation. Yeah, it is a full-time job. Yep. But is Keeping it... track of stupid boys. Yep. <laughs> but is it legal? I gasped. As far as I know, there is no law against writing your will in a blend of disappearing and sympathetic ink. Sympathetic ink? Appearing ink? I assume, yeah. I, I assume sympathetic meaning um, like because it was disappearing because it disappeared and then yeah. sympathetic because mm -hmm. he held it to the fire and it came back. Um, it's the oh. it's the trick that they use in uh, National Treasure. Oh. To uncover the map on the back right. of the declaration. Right, you know, right, that, right. That great triumph of scientific and historical accuracy, national treasure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that old chestnut. <laughs> okay, got it. As far as I know, there is no law against writing your will in a blend of disappearing and sympathetic ink. The invention of the testator is clear. Testator. Te testicle. <laughs> testator. The 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 what the what of the testicle the testator is what it says <laughs> but then i said it testata and that's i don't know no i like i like testicle the what of the testicle is clear the intention the intention of the testicle really it should be clear is clear yeah um what yeah. is what's the testator a person who has made a will or given a legacy so her uncle in oh this duh case. got it the intention um, of the testator is yeah. clear. Yes. Got, got it. Um, That's why it's that you can write it in invisible ink. Yeah. As long as the intention so is clear. So long as the intention is clear. Got yes. it. Okay. Yeah. Because the intention of testicles is usually clear sure, regardless sure. of how sure, sure, sure. writing has mm -hmm, been done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clear goals. <laughs> Very clear goals. <laughs> Very clear job to do. Yep. Not a lot of ambiguity there. <laughs> the intention of testicular this. Testicular ambiguity. <laughs> Indecisive testicle syndrome. That. Uh, might be the name of my upcoming punk album. There you go. Testicular ambiguity. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Every song needs to be in a minor key. Oh, that's that doesn't sound moronic. like a good, a good problem now. <laughs> no, no, I would think testicular ambiguity would be a really disconcerting sure. <laughs> uh, um, issue, personal uh, failing to oh, suffer from. Oh boy. <laughs> Okay, the intention of the testator is clear, <laughs> and the beneficiary is his only living relation. But the cleverness of him, he foresaw every step that a searcher would take, that I, miserable imbecile, took. He gets two will forms, makes the servant sign twice, then sallies out with his will written on the inside of a dirty envelope and a fountain pen containing his little ink mixture. On some excuse, he gets the confectioner and his wife to sign their names under his own signature. Then he ties it to the key of his desk and chuckles to himself. If his niece sees through his little ruse, she will have justified her choice of life and elaborate education and be thoroughly welcome to his money. Hmm. Nicely done. Yeah. She didn't. Good, good ploy. Right. Good game. She didn't see through it, though, did she? I said slowly. It seems rather unfair. The old man really won. But no, Hastings, it is your wits that go astray. Miss Marsh proved the astuteness of her wits and the value of the higher education for women by at once putting the matter in my hands. <laughs> okay, that's some logic. That's a little douchey there. That's some Poirot. logic. Always employ the expert. She has amply proved her right to the money. <laughs> I wonder, I very much wonder what old Andrew Marsh would have thought. The end. Hooray! <laughs> you know, that was a fun little twist at the end. But I like that. I don't know if I love the, uh, the conclusion of, well, this girl's smart enough to deserve all the money, not because she's just an intelligent person or that she's well-educated because she knew well to put it in a smarter man's hands. Which, <laughs> which, is, which is an interpretation, but what he actually said was that um, she, she was clearly well-educated to do the smart thing, which is when you run into a problem... Employ the expert. Employ the expert. You're right, you're right, you're right. Which no, you're is right. not the same thing as trust a man. 
It's it's true. It it hit my ears a little funny, but you're right. Yeah. And I like that um, <laughs> that uh, you know Hastings is a little cheeky. He's like, I wonder what Mr. Marsh would have thought of all this, you know. Hastings always he's, I like Hastings. Cheeky, cheeky. He's funny. He's a good dude. Yeah. Um, oh, that was such fun. I'm very surprised that you have not read uh, Poirot or or I have not Lady Agatha in general before. She's um, uh, yeah, and I have to say this about myself: I love to read. It's actually sort of the same thing with movies, and I and I love movies too. But I have big gaps in my like education. There's just like whole you know swaths of stuff that sort of like are considered classics that people are like you've never seen X Y Z thing, you've never read X Y Z yeah. thing, and I'm just like, no, I, I I'm sorry, <laughs> but but I'll read it now, and, you know. <laughs> and but there's also so much to read and to see that it's yeah. like how could you ever you know. Yeah. But I'm glad to start my uh, Agatha Christie education with yeah. this. Yeah, she's fun. she's a ton of fun. You should um, you should go back and listen to at least some of the fun facts, if not the entire stories that we've recorded about her. Oh, I'm going um, to because there random stuff like um, so she made her living as a mystery writer. Mm -hmm. um, listeners, if you've been listening for a long time, this will be old information to you. But if this is your first time listening, and if we're doing our job right, every episode is somebody's first episode, uh, this this will be new to you. So here's some some sort of fun facts that we got about Agatha Christie over the there years. There you go. Um, Hello, fellow newbies. She <laughs> was an avid surfer. Excuse me? Yep. There are pictures. Like, there are pictures of her USA. like on the beach in her little swimsuit. It's like stripy one piece, and yes. she's got the, the big ass surfer. She was an avid surfer, which is why in my head the Beach Boys song "Surfer Girl" Absolutely. is a song to Agatha Christie. Um, she also uh, um, mysteriously went missing for for I don't remember the exact time frame, but for several days. Um, she was already she was already developing a bit of a following as being a mystery writer. She she was getting well liked, but it was fairly early in her career, um, and it was discovered that her husband was having an affair and would probably be leaving her. And she had a little mental break. Her car was discovered by the side of a lake, and she was gone for ten days. Oh. Nobody had any idea where she was. She was discovered a week and a half later at some hotel somewhere up wow. north um, with supposedly no memory of what had happened. And she refused to talk about those missing days for most of the rest of her life. It's just one of those... Oh, that's spooky. ...random things. Um, and... It has been attributed Whoa. to either just she got cheated on and that was how she dealt with it and she didn't want to talk about it and so she feigned amnesia or sure. like it was actually so traumatic that that she just her, blacked it out. Yeah, her brain was protecting her. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, but yeah. I get she's, it, man. Sometimes you just got to disappear for a yeah. while. <laughs> just can't deal. Just cannot deal. But... Yeah, she's she's super interesting, and there's there's a reason she's sort of the muse of this podcast. It was reading her stories around an actual campfire that that uh, oh, I got love us it. got us doing this and thinking it would be fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm so grateful you had me on, and I this am so fun. So grateful that you you came in and joined. This was let's do it again lovely. if you have more tech difficulties. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so. Uh, Typically, the way we end episodes, um, and again, I'm talking to the newbies, both listeners and hosts, is um, uh, with a series of uh, thank yous. Thank you for listening. Um, please do shoot us an email at 5050artsproduction at gmail.com. 5050artsproduction is our um, sort of parent production company. Uh, you can also track us down on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all of the other social medias that I don't really understand how they work. <laughs> but apparently when people message us there, magically you get responses. Um, someone's doing it. <laughs> someone's, someone's doing their job. Uh, also, if you are sending us an email or a uh, instant message or whatever, please, somewhere in the subject or the body of the message, 
send us the secret code that lets us know that you have made it this far into the episode. Uh, and this week's secret code is actually two different things. One, uh, testicular ambiguity. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear that. Mm-hmm. Also, just send a thank you, Emily. <laughs> Um, because, uh, because thank you, Emily. Thank you for having me. For, for joining us. Uh, this has been a ton of fun. I think by the time I'm done editing it, this is going to be a little bit of a shorter episode, but that's okay. Um, clearly we have determined that my usual co-host is the one who likes to take us off on tangents. (laughs) 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 Uh, so I stayed on task. So you stayed on task. Yes. Well done. Um, I'm sorry that I kept the French accent the whole time. Oh, no, it was great. I have to it was say, lovely. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm happy with myself. It was great. <laughs> Did my best. Uh, in case anyone <laughs> wants to track you down or figure out what you're doing in life, where can they find you? Yes. Um, you can find me on Instagram at mbosc, E-M-B-O-S-C, um, or my website is emilybosco.com. That's about it. Yeah. Great. So uh, links links to uh, links to Emily's pages and whatnot will be in the little description of this episode, and I'll probably post them up on the Campfire Classics website as well. Uh, I think that's it for this week. So thank you very much for listening, and until next week, this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Bye.